This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Beverly Ollett? First, I'll look at the background of this case, move to the timeline of the crimes, and offer my analysis. Everly Ollett was born in Grantham, Lincolnshire, England, on October 4, 1968. She grew up in a village just outside of Grantham called Corby Glen. This was a small community of about 450 people. The village was known for sheep farming and literally had hundreds of sheep fairs in their history. This is ironic because Beverly would later learn how to be a wolf in sheep's clothing. Beverly's mother had a job cleaning a school, and her father worked at a liquor store. Beverly had two sisters and one brother. She appeared to have an affinity for children. She would often babysit children in the community and acted like a mother to children who were younger than her. Beverly said that she wanted to be a nurse someday and specifically care for children. As a teenager, Beverly engaged in attention-seeking behavior specifically related to her health. For example, she exaggerated and fabricated illnesses and injuries. At various times, she falsely claimed to have a brain tumor, a stomach ulcer, and other medical conditions. She even had her appendix removed despite there being nothing wrong with it. She manipulated the surgical wound to make it worse in order to get more attention. Beverly would go to one physician for a while until that physician figured out what she was doing. Then she would move on to another. She had a fiancé at one point. He would later say that she falsely claimed that she was pregnant and physically attacked him. As a teenager, Beverly took a step toward fulfilling her dream of becoming a nurse by enrolling at a nursing school in Grantham. She was a terrible student. She missed about 100 days based on claims of being sick and failed nursing examinations repeatedly. Beverly also engaged in bizarre behavior. For example, at one point when she was assigned to a nursing home as part of her training, she smeared feces on the walls. In the middle of February 1991, Beverly applied for a job at a hospital 30 miles away, but she was rejected. This was not surprising considering that calling her a horrendous nursing student was actually a compliment based on her level of competence. Right after this appropriate rejection, 
Beverly was offered a six-month contract at the Grantham and Kestevin Hospital in Lincolnshire. The hospital was chronically understaffed. They had advertised for a staff nurse, but did not even receive one application. This explains why they were willing to hire Beverly. She worked in Ward Number 4, which was a children's ward. Her plan was to work at this hospital for a while and then apply to the other hospital that rejected her. Apparently, Beverly thought that the hospital in Grantham did not meet her standards, which was probably what the hospital staff members were thinking about her. Now moving to the timeline of the crimes. On February 21, 1991, a seven-week-old boy named Liam Taylor was admitted to Ward 4 because he had a chest infection. Beverly was assigned to care for him. His parents stayed at the hospital, but Beverly told them to go home, assuring them that everything would be fine. When they returned, Beverly told them that Liam had a respiratory emergency, but he recovered. Liam had a second respiratory emergency on February 23. Beverly called the emergency resuscitation team, but Liam did not survive. Hospital staff members were suspicious because alarm monitors had not activated when Liam stopped breathing. Despite this, no foul play was suspected. Liam's cause of death was recorded as heart failure. Beverly was not questioned in connection with his death. On March 5, an 11-year-old boy named Timothy Hardwick was admitted to Ward 4 after having a seizure related to epilepsy. He had been born with severe brain damage and had never been able to see, speak, or walk. After caring for him for a short time, Beverly called the resuscitation team. They found Timothy with no pulse. They tried to save him, but they were not successful. Physicians determined that he died from epilepsy and cerebral palsy. Just a few days after this, a one-year-old girl on Beverly's ward had two episodes of respiratory failure in a span of three hours. Physicians were able to save the girl. They came to believe that she was accidentally injected with air. On March 20, 1991, Beverly injected a five-month-old named Paul Crampton with insulin. He was transferred to another hospital and survived. The next day, March 21, a five-year-old boy went into cardiac arrest and was saved by the resuscitation team. Insulin was found in his system. Physicians at the hospital were confused by this. On March 28, a two-year-old boy named Henry Chan fell 20 feet out of a window onto a patio. He was taken to the hospital where Beverly worked. Physicians determined that his skull had been fractured in two places, but he was expected to recover. After Beverly cared for him, he suffered cardiac arrest. Henry survived. The physicians thought that the skull fracture explained his symptoms. On April 1, 1991, two-month-old twin girls, Becky and Katie Phillips, were admitted for observation. The girls were discharged from the hospital a few days later, but on April 5, Becky died at home. Physicians were unable to determine her cause of death. Katie was returned to the hospital due to her sister's death. Physicians wanted to monitor her for a while to make sure that whatever killed her sister Becky did not kill her. Not long after this, Beverly was providing one-on-one care to Katie when she called the resuscitation team. The girl survived but was severely injured. The girl's mother believed that Beverly had saved Katie. She was so grateful that she made Beverly the girl's godmother. Over the next few weeks, 
Beverly conducted four more attacks against patients, but the physicians were able to save her victims in every case. By this point, hospital staff members suspected something nefarious was going on. On April 22, 1991, a 15-month-old girl named Claire Peck was admitted to Ward 4 after having an asthma attack. She unexpectedly died. The physicians concluded her death was from natural causes, but one physician, a consultant at the hospital, was not convinced. He found traces of a drug called lidocaine in Claire's system, which had never been prescribed to her. The lidocaine almost certainly didn't kill her, but it still made Beverly look guilty. Hospital staff notified the police and suspended Beverly. The police discovered that Beverly was the only nurse on duty when the attacks happened. The police believed that Beverly had attacked patients using a variety of methods, including suffocation, tampering with machines, cutting off oxygen, and injecting drugs like insulin and potassium. Altogether, Beverly had been involved in 25 suspicious episodes and murdered four victims. Beverly was arrested on July 26, 1991. In November of that year, she was charged with a number of offenses, including murder and attempted murder. She pleaded not guilty to the charges. On May 28, 1993, Beverly Alit was found guilty on four charges of murder, three counts of attempted murder, and six counts of causing grievous bodily harm. She was sentenced to 13 terms of life imprisonment, with the possibility of parole after 30 years. Instead of prison, Beverly was sent to a secure mental health facility to serve her sentence. She became eligible for parole in 2021, but at the time making this video, Beverly is still incarcerated. Now moving to my analysis. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Something is creeping Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son, who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Here are my thoughts on a few areas that stood out to me in this case. Item number one. In the beginning, Beverly maintained her innocence, but it really didn't matter. It was clear that she was guilty. Here are just a few examples of the evidence against her. Beverly had a history of lying about medical symptoms. She was aggressive and violent at times. She reported that the keys to the insulin refrigerator in the hospital were missing. 
nursing logs were missing from the hospital, the missing documents were found in Beverly's home. Beverly was the only nurse on duty when these suspicious episodes occurred, and the chances of all of these suspicious episodes in Ward 4 occurring at random was less than 1 in 10 million. Eventually, Beverly did end up confessing to three of the murders and six of the assaults. This removed any tiny bit of doubt which may have remained. Item number two, Beverly was initially diagnosed with Munchausen syndrome by proxy, which technically isn't actually a recognized disorder. The disorder is called factitious disorder. There are two types of factitious disorder, imposed on self and imposed on another. Munchausen syndrome by proxy is the same as factitious disorder imposed on another. Usually this disorder involves a mother imposing symptoms on a child. Here are some of the typical characteristics of those who have this disorder and how they align with Beverly's behavior. They often have extensive knowledge of medical terminology. Beverly was a nurse, albeit not a good one. They often have an extremely long history of medical and or mental health visits. They seek treatment frequently. Beverly started pretending she was ill as a teenager. They go to several physicians or mental health clinicians for the same fabricated symptoms. Beverly engaged in this behavior, at least with physicians. People with factitious disorder tend to be sadistic. They enjoy seeing their victims suffer. It is reasonable to believe that Beverly was sadistic based on her horrible behavior. Men are rarely involved, but when they are, they almost always play a passive role to a dominant woman. No man was involved in Beverly's case. She operated alone, but her former fiancé suggested that Beverly was dominant and forced him to be passive. The undesired behavior tends to be persistent. This aligns with Beverly's behavior. After Beverly was suspended from the hospital, but before she was arrested, she continued to work in healthcare, just not the hospital where she committed the attacks. Beverly was suspected of attempting to murder a 14-year-old boy and an elderly resident of a retirement facility, although she was never convicted. After being incarcerated at the secure mental health facility, Beverly continued to engage in attention-seeking behavior. For example, she caused injuries to herself. As a side note, how desperate were these healthcare companies that they hired Beverly after she was fired? Were they looking for someone who would permanently discharge patients? What positive characteristic can possibly compensate for being suspected of killing patients? I can imagine a healthcare executive contemplating the decision to hire Beverly. Well, she murdered some of her patients, but she can start tomorrow, so it's a tough call. Item number three, what motivates people with factitious disorder imposed on another? The motivation behind this disorder is thought to be unconscious, but the mechanism of fabricating the symptoms is conscious. So they don't know why they were pushed toward the behavior, but they do know that they are deceiving treatment providers. One could argue that the lack of insight is not complete. Rather, it is contained to the domain of motivation. They don't know why they behave the way they do. If both the motivation and the mechanism were unconscious, this would be something like somatoform disorder. With that disorder, the person is not doing anything to cause the symptoms. The symptoms are actually being experienced. The symptoms are real. There's just no explanation for them outside of the mental health domain. Moving to item number four, 
What do I think happened in this case? This is just a theory, my opinion. When Beverly was a teenager, she was highly interested in caring for children, but she didn't seem to be on a track to have her own children someday. People in the community felt as though Beverly did not even try to find a romantic partner. She was thought of as mildly attractive, but she made no effort to look more attractive. For example, she did not use makeup, and she dressed in a way that made her look plain. Beverly worked side jobs to earn a few extra pounds, but she also earned a few extra pounds in other ways. She was described as chronically overweight. There was this sense in the community that Beverly just gave up on romance or didn't have an interest in starting a family. She did have a fiancé at one time, but she physically and verbally mistreated him and did not value the relationship. As all this was going on, Beverly was expressing symptoms of factitious disorder imposed on self. She was pretending to be sick. She also had the capability of expressing symptoms consistent with factitious disorder imposed on another, but she did not have children of her own. Usually, someone like this would start fabricating symptoms for their own children. Beverly was essentially blocked from a typical path of symptom expression. Therefore, she forged another path to satisfy her desires. Beverly became a nurse in a hospital unit for children. The object of a person with factitious disorder is to gain sympathy. But here we see that Beverly had a problem. The children at the hospital, the patients, were not her children. So very little sympathy generated by their illnesses would be diverted to Beverly. Rather, it would go primarily to the children's parents. Put another way, Beverly's proportion of the total sympathy was very low as compared to, say, a mother fabricating symptoms for her child. Beverly was not able to increase the proportion of sympathy that she received, but she was able to increase the total amount of sympathy generated. This is why, instead of simply causing mild harm to generate sympathy, Beverly murdered and attempted to murder her victims. In order for her share of the sympathy to be enough to satisfy her needs, the amount of total sympathy needed to be phenomenal. Tragic death met that criterion. To use an analogy from the world of sound, imagine a speaker generating music in a field. The music represents sympathy. A mother fabricating symptoms for her child would be 10 feet away from that speaker. So if the volume wasn't turned up too much, she could still hear it. Beverly was 100 feet away. She needed the volume to be much higher. Now moving to my final thoughts. Beverly targeted the most vulnerable people in society. The more defenseless her victims were, the greater the thrill was from harming them. No amount of sympathy that Beverly earned could ever be enough to satisfy her desire for pleasure. She was a killing machine in a nearly perfect disguise. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence. 
delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.